Well, if you've been with us this year, you know that we have been taking a journey through the biblical narrative in 2023, and we're getting towards the end of the year, we're still taking a journey, because it's a lot of journey there. We started at the very beginning, uh, back in January, and here we are. We've made it, finally made it to the time period of ancient Israel, where um, they uh, took their confederation of tribes that uh, figured that they would be better with a centralized government, and so they formed uh, their first monarchy, and they had a king that ruled over them. And then we've made our way to the second king of Israel, whose name was David. And we've been studying David's story for some time now. And uh, uh, I've said this already before, but I want to say it again. If, if someone was, and someone should, if someone could take David's life with so many interesting details and so much written about him, and they could turn it into a, a, like a Netflix series. It would be so good. But I feel like there, there would be at least three seasons to that show just because there's so much said about David. And we spent weeks in that first section, weeks talking about David, uh, the undiscovered young man who became, whose star was rising in the kingdom, who ended up being a fugitive and running for his life. And then we are in this current space now, and really this second season of David's life could be six or more episodes if we wanted it to be. But we are cramming this whole section into two Sundays, last week and today, which means just like last week, I'm going to throw a lot at you today, so buckle up and hang on tight, because we're just covering a lot of ground. Otherwise, we'll be in David until next year, because there's so much written about him. So we're covering a wide section of his life in short time, because we're going to start the third season, if we put it that way, of David's life, and it's going to come out of the gate <laughs> like fire next week. So we got to get ready for that. So today's important to connect this era of his life. If you've missed any of the episodes so far, you can catch them online at our website. Audio and video links are both there. And if you, because we're going to cover so much ground today, if you want to go home and read more for yourself, because I'm going to skip over some things and just talk about them, you can go home this week and study 2 Samuel chapter 5 through 2 Samuel chapter 9. It will be our material. But we got to buckle down and get through some ground so we can get into the, uh, the third and final epic season of David's life beginning next week. So um, today, David has been our protagonist. He is now the king of all of Israel. He's finally become the king of the whole land. And it's been like 20 years in the making. He was like 17 when he was first anointed to be king. And he went through a lot, including a lot of really rough years. And then some years of reigning just in his home tribe. But now he's king of all Israel. It's been 20 years in the making. And David has been a great protagonist so far, hasn't he? I mean, he has basically been pretty flawless. He's made a couple little mistakes if you want to be picky. But largely he's been a great person to follow and cheer for. That's going to change a little bit. He's going to stumble and make some, uh, some uh, bad judgments along the way and just wrongdoings. But he's been a great, great uh, protagonist, and we love him. He's one of our favorite characters in the Bible. Uh, he's referred to in uh, Scripture as a man after God's own heart because he has such a passion for the Lord. But today, we want to get into this section, and so let's, let's get cranking. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, two important events happen. I'm going to just go over them for a few minutes each. Uh, the, the bigger one is that David conquers the city of Jerusalem. Now, we said last week that um, Jerusalem was more long north and south than it was wide east and west, and the southern part of the kingdom was the tribe of Judah, David's home tribe. 
It was the biggest tribe of any tribe, but it was not bigger than all the other tribes put together. But the southern kingdom was Judah. When David reigned in Judah for seven plus years, he uh, actually had um, moved the, his, made his capital in the city of Hebron, or some call it Hebron, which is, which is central in Judah. But when he finally got the whole nation, when he became king of the whole nation, David felt like it was time to uh, move the capital city further north to be central to the whole nation, not just the tribe of Judah. And David was familiar with North Judah because David was from North Judah in a little town called Bethlehem. And not far from Bethlehem was another city called Jerusalem. Jerusalem had never been conquered by Israel when they came back into the promised land. There were lots of places that there were pockets of people who were not part of their nation, though their cities and strongholds were in Israel. And no one had ever taken Jerusalem. But David thought, I want Jerusalem. It's north, it's north Judah. It's a great spot for the whole kingdom to centralize government. Still in Judah where I feel safe. It's not up in Benjamin where the last king was from and there's hostilities politically there. It's a perfect spot for me to lead from. So he wants to, to capture. The problem with Jerusalem was it was impenetrable. It was a fortress city. In fact, there was a saying in Jerusalem from the people who lived there, the Jebusites would say that we are so well fortified that even the blind and the lame could keep out enemy invaders. And so David says to his men, hey, if any of my men can, for, can rally together and one of them can lead the others to conquer the city of Jerusalem, then you're going to be my new commander of my army in Israel. Now, this was, this was very intel, intentional by David because he was trying to replace the idea that Joab was the current commander of the army of Israel. We saw last week that Joab was his commander. Joab and his brothers helped lead David's men when he was a fugitive. But now that he's become the king, they grew with him, but they were trouble. They were kind of mavericks and unhealthy at times, but they were good soldiers. And David wanted to, to just put Joab aside. So he says, whoever leads the others to conquer Jerusalem is my new commander. Well, Joab heard that, and he's like, hey, I know that I'm kind of out of good graces with David, but I don't want to lose my gig. So he gets the guys together. They, they're loyal to him, and they capture Jerusalem. So <laughs> it didn't work out very well for David. Uh, so David had bad news and good news. On the bad news front, he still had Joab as his now new commander of all of Israel. But on the good news, he had the new capital city, the fortress of Jerusalem. And he moved his, his, his kingdom from Hebron, Hebron to uh, Jerusalem and settled in there. Now, that's the first big story. The second thing that happens in these verses is that Hiram, who is the king of Tyre, a nearby kingdom, he builds a palace for David at Jerusalem. So Hiram probably watched David's you know, very well-known legacy as he runs from King Saul and was a fugitive. And now he's on the throne and Israel's behind him. He's captured Jerusalem. So Hiram is going to do something to show support, maybe to build an alliance. So he sends congratulations to David and he sends over a bunch of building materials, cedar wood and other things. He sends some stonemasons and some carpenters and some skilled laborers to Jerusalem. And as a gift, Hiram has his people build a palace for David in his new city. How cool for David. In fact, it's such, this is such a good time in David's life that when you read these verses, it says over and over that David was so aware of how good God was blessing him, of how much he was blessed, that God was with him, obviously. He was so aware that he was on top of the world, finally, 
after all we've been studying the past many weeks. Well, that brings us to verse 13, 2 Samuel 5 and verse 13. After moving from Hebron to Jerusalem, David married more concubines and wives, and they had more sons and daughters. Now, this was not uncommon back then for people to, um, uh, who were powerful. I, I've, I've, we've spoken a lot at Lighthouse, if you've been with us. We've spoken a lot about how women just did not, were not treated with the dignity that they should be, that they are more today than before, but not in all parts of the world, unfortunately. But back then, I mean, it was just the way the world was in so many places, and, and you know, we didn't have a voice, they didn't, they didn't have control, they didn't have power. And if you were, you could be in a bad spot pretty quickly. We won't get into all of that. But, but as much as this seems terrible today, and it, was, it is terrible even then, the baseline was different. So for so many women, the chance to become a man's wife or one of his wives was at least a financial security if he was well off or powerful. And it was a chance to have a family and have a future. And it's just, it's, it's not good, but it's how the world was. And men who are powerful or rich could marry multiple wives. And, and uh, David's a king. It was common for kings to do that. It mentions he has concubines and wives. To make the difference, both concubines and wives are sexually intimate with, the, with David or the, whoever, the, David in the story. And they had children with David. But they're differentiated. Wives are wives. You get the idea? They're wives. And concubines are more like maids with benefits or something. I don't know how to say that. Anyhow, so there's a whole scene going on here. And David has all of these, uh, these, these women and all these kids. And, and you say, well, that's not a big deal. That's how things were. It was how things were, but there was a problem. It's not how things were supposed to be in Israel because God, who was very progressive, by the way, for the times, at looking at how people were treated, and he, he, he warned uh, something very important in the law of Moses. So we got to rewind real quick here. When the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and God brought them out of slavery under the leadership of Moses, Moses gave them laws that would govern their nation one day. The law of Moses, we call it the Torah or the Pentateuch. And in that law was a lot of things. There was judicial laws and civil laws and moral laws. There were, there were um, health codes and dietary uh, policies and, and disease control issues. And you name it, it was all built in there for the new nation. And David, by the way, he had a good relationship to the law. He loved it. David would say that the law of God was sweeter to him than honey in the honeycomb. It was more precious than fine gold and, and, and precious metals that he was his inspiration all day long. But in that law were some commands that were written way back when, looking forward to the time that Israel would finally settle down and have their own kings. There were laws for how the king was supposed to lead. And David, who embraced and loved the law, well, he's not following the law as it pertains specifically to his role in this instance. And I want to show that to you. Now, there's a lot of verses here. We're going to skip most of them but you should read them for yourself. They're about how a king is supposed to lead the Israel according to the law of Moses. Just one verse only today. Let's rewind to Deuteronomy 17, 17. The law says the king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of, of wealth and silver and gold for himself. In other words, as the king, he's going to be more powerful. He's going to have more stuff because he's the king. 
That's, that's how it goes, but he's not to take his wealth and power and leverage it to make himself even richer and more powerful at the expense of the people he's leading and governing. Wouldn't it be great if always if governments always did that to their people, that they would not abuse their power? And David, the king was not to abuse his power to make himself more wealthy and more powerful. And he was not to multiply wives, to take many wives to himself. Now, now the reason given is that they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And, and so why, for David, who honestly was a great man and has trusted God all through his life and had a, wrote songs about how much he loved God's law, why would he misstep here? For some of us, the reason we break rules is because we don't like rules. Like, it's almost like, here's a rule. Oh, well, I wouldn't have done that, but now that you told me I can't, now I'm going to, you know? Some people are like that. Others are like, um, well, if you have a good reason for it, so the reason given here is that if you multiply wives, they'll turn your heart from the Lord. And maybe David d does what we are tempted to do, to say, oh, well, that doesn't pertain to me. David could have said, I'm not going to turn away from the Lord. I mean, I love the Lord. Look at how I've trusted him through all I've been through. I've proven myself to be okay. I can handle it. Maybe he's made himself an exception. That We do that sometimes. We're like, well, that doesn't apply to me. But the thing was that when the law was given for kings, it wasn't a law that said, do this, because if you, if you do this wrong, it will lead here, unless you think you're okay. No, it was, a, it was there for a reason. But David said, I don't know. I think I got this. And so he was multiplying wives and concubines for himself and having a big family. And again, he's, a great, he's been great in every area, but he's misstepping the intended law of Moses. He's doing what he saw other kings do. He watched Saul do it. He saw, he saw, um, he lived in the land of the Philistines. His parents lived in the land of, of, of the Moab for a while. He'd seen this is the way the world was. And David did it to himself, though it was not supposed to be. Anyhow, we're, that's going to play a role in his life as the story goes on. Let's keep moving. We have a lot of ground to cover. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, tells the story of David bringing the ark of the Lord to the city of Jerusalem. So again, a little backstory to understand the importance of this. Back when the Israelites came out of slavery and they practiced their worship of God, they had built a tent in the wilderness as they wandered about called the tabernacle, a fancy tent, where people would come to offer sacrifices and make atonement. There was special sacred furniture in there. The most holy place within the tent contained the most sacred furniture, centerpiece of which was the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Lord. Inside that Ark box, you could open up were some important artifacts of God's deliverance for them. And it's a whole story we've briefly touched on. It. We're not talking about it today. But it, but it symbolized God's presence in Israel. And they, they moved that tent around and that ark stayed there. And you had a special rules for how you moved the ark. But when they came to the city of Jerusalem, when, when, when they came to Israel and settled down, all these many years now, for a long time, the ark of the Lord in the tabernacle tent was kept in one place now. It wasn't moving around anymore. And it was in the city of Shiloh for a long time. Well, now that David is the king, and he has new capital city, the fortress of Jerusalem, and he's moved there, and now they've built a palace for him in Jerusalem, David says, I want God's, I want the ark of the Lord here. I want the tent brought here to the capital city. Why? Because I love the Lord. And people can come to this place to, 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 to see that and to worship the Lord that way. And we can make this the hub of our spiritual activity, and I can be closer to this presence of God. 
So David is doing this for all these good reasons. So he sends people to bring the ark, and they are going to put it on a cart, and they're going to move it not the way they were supposed to, kind of clumsily, and it doesn't go well. A tragedy takes place, and someone dies in, in transit. It's a great story. It's a really good story to talk about, but it's not in our time today. So because of all that, the, the progress gets stopped for a while. And finally, David does get the ark of the Lord brought all the way to the new capital city, to Jerusalem. And as it's finally entering the city sometime later, David is so happy, he goes out to meet it. And people are celebrating, they're lining the streets. Women are writing songs and singing. People are praising and playing instruments. And David goes out there and, and the story says that he disrobes a bit and is dancing in front of the procession before the Lord. Now, the disrobes part is always tricky when you translate Hebrew. Anyone who does an honest look at that knows sometimes we're just, you got to flush things out. It's, it's just how it is. Some believe that it, it means that David disrobed to almost an indecent level. Others think he just, that's not what he did. He just basically took off his kingly attire, which the king always wore in public for decorum. And he, he lacked dignity by just kind of taking it off and dancing before the Lord. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know what was going on. I wasn't there. Maybe he had three friends and they had their shirts off and they had a pain in their chest. Y-H-W-H. Yeah. I don't know what they were doing. But anyhow, they had something going on. But, but here we, we know that as they come to the city, David is celebrating. And, and David's passionate. You, if you understand this, you'll understand David. He's an artist. He's a songwriter. He's a musician. He's passionate. When you read his songs in the book of Psalms, you'll see how, how, how hot David could burn passionately. Like he'd be writing one psalm saying, God's the best and my life is awesome, whoa! And the next psalm he's like, everything stinks and I don't know what I'm gonna do. I mean, he just, he, he bled his motions onto his music. And he was a great warrior, but he was a passionate guy. So he's out here in front of the ark coming into Jerusalem and he's, he's disrobed to some extent. He's, he's dancing around and frolicking, having a great time as the procession enters and the people cheer, line the streets, it says in verse 15, So David and all the people of Israel brought the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. And here's where we enter our central event for today. Verse 16 says, But as, but as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window in the palace and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. Now, this is, this is so key, and so we can't just go on without talking about why she was feeling this way. So we're going to review a little bit. If you've been with us, you rem I'm going to remind us of what we've seen so far. Who is Michael? Michael was King Saul's daughter. She was a young girl when David was a young man. And as a, just a young, young adult man, brought to the palace as a musician for her father. She didn't even know him then. And then he becomes a national hero when he kills the, the giant of the Philistines. And everyone loves him. He becomes a, a, a song people are singing about. He's a military hero. And, and, and she falls head over heels over David. Like, she had his posters in her room. She owned all his albums. I mean, she was just so excited about David. And so she, um, as, as, you see, as you see Michael getting excited about this young man that she felt, it says that Michael loved David, by the way. Very interesting. You'll never see in these ancient writings another place where it says that a woman loved the man in, the, in these writings. It usually says the man loved the woman. But in this story, it says that Michael loved David. This young girl loved with this young heroic guy who, who couldn't love David. 
And David was probably flattered by that and loved being loved. And loved. It doesn't really say he, he loved her. It doesn't mean he didn't. It just doesn't, it doesn't say that. Like that wasn't the center driving factor going on here. He loved her brother Jonathan, and Jonathan loved him. They were dear friends. But David, I'm sure, was excited. In fact, King Saul saw an opportunity to maybe trip up David because he was starting to get insecure about David. Maybe he can get rid of David by giving him a task that would dispose of him. So he said, well, my daughter wants to marry you. You can marry her without a bunch of money because you're poor if you'll go do this dangerous mission, thinking that it would get him rid of his David problem. But kind of like David with Joab earlier, as I mentioned, well, David passed the test. David should have known this. Uh, He passed the test and, and he got the girl. So now he's married to King Saul's daughter. He's part of the family through marriage. And she loves him and she's got googly eyes for him and he's like, man, I'm part of the royal family and I'm advancing in the kingdom and God's anointed me and I can see my star rising. And this young couple, very young couple, is living together in the same house. They're sleeping in the same bed. And her dad gets so upset, King Saul gets so upset about David's popularity that he decides to kill him. Remember, he sends forces to his daughter's house to kill David in their, just to kill David. And she sees what's happening and she helps her husband escape out the window. And King Saul is mad at his daughter for helping her. She's like, I love him, he's my husband. And David runs and becomes a fugitive. And Michael stays there. And what happens from there is two lives go different directions. On Michael's end, her dad takes her and says, you're no longer married to David. I'm going to give you to somebody else. Well, thanks, Dad. Gives him to somebody else to be married to. Because, and, and, and there's a lot of reasons, but one of the key reasons for that was no doubt that Saul was like, David has no claim to the house of Saul, the royalty, if I cut him out of the family because I feel he's, he's kind of rising. Not that he had a claim to the throne as a son-in-law, probably anyhow, with all of Saul's other sons. But he found David so threatening that he said, if I can remove David from the family, I delegitimatize him for the throne. So he takes his daughter and he gives her to another man. And she spends almost all of her adult life with that guy. Years and, and, and more than a decade goes by. Folks, 15 to 20 years pass before they see each other again. I mean, that's, that's like half their life. And really, it's, it's the entirety of her adult life and pretty much the entirety of David's adult life. David's over here as a fugitive. David's over here running, and she's got another husband. He marries some other wives while on exile, comes to Jerusalem, to Hebron, and marries a bunch more there. Then he comes to get the whole kingdom. And when he does, he says, I want Michael, my first wife, back. Because I, I earned her with my exploits. She's my property. You know? So he basically says, I want her back. And so men come, we saw it last week, they came to her family and they said, the king's taking you back. And and as they brought her back to King David, her husband of all, almost all of her adult life, she hasn't seen David in a long time. This husband she's known for the last 15, 20 years follows behind her and just weeps mile after mile and town after town just because he's losing his one precious little lamb. And finally the people taking her said, just go home. And he goes back home heartbroken. And I don't know how she felt right then, but you can imagine. She's brought back to David, the man that she used to love as a, as, a, as a young woman. And he loved her and they were sharing a new life together. But now they've been apart and she's had a whole new life. He's had a whole new life. And she's brought back not to be his one precious lamb, like her grieving husband was feeling, but to be one of his flock of wives and concubines. To be brought into the royal palace. Not to be back in the same house anymore, in the same bed like they were as kids, as young people. 
but now to be in her own room with her own attendants as one of the women that David would see as he would see his other wives from time to time. It wasn't the same. Nothing was the same. Her dad has been killed. Her brothers are all dead. The life she's built in some anonymity is ripped from her by a man she used to love and adore, but she doesn't even know him anymore. And now he's got the control to say, you're mine. And she's in the house with all the other wives. And she's not happy. And when she looks out that window that day and she sees her husband out there dancing in front of the procession, stripping down however he's doing it, singing and prancing around, she feels contempt for him. I talk to people all through the years when it comes to marriage and such, and um, it's interesting that of all the emotions, once contempt enters the relationship, it's hard to recover. It's usually over rover. And she has contempt for David. And so David has no clue. He's, he's living his best life right now. He's out there. The, the ark is being brought into the city. And so let's keep the story going. In verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord and they set it in its place inside the special tent that David had prepared for it, the new tabernacle in Jerusalem. They bring the ark there. David offered sacrifices, burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. And when he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. And then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of raisins. Food was a big deal. He had to really scrunch it up. It was just a different kind of world. I mean, a gift of food for everyone who came was a big deal. David's like, you get some food and you get some food and everyone gets some food. And so they're all getting their food and they're all heading home. And David is happy. The people are blessing David and David's blessing the people and they're blessing God and God has blessed them. I want to say this so you understand the context. This is the highest moment of David's life so far. Just a couple weeks ago, we saw David at his lowest moment. We saw David at a spot where he had lost his family, were captured by the Amalekites. He may never see them again. His men wanted to kill him. He didn't know what was going to happen. And he was at his lowest spot right before God stepped in and suddenly turned the, the whole thing around. We saw that. But for that being his lowest moment, this is probably his highest, or at least way up there. Back. I mean, he's finally got all the, the early victories and then the, the long, hard years of running. Now he's king of all Israel, new capital city. The whole nation loves him. They're, they're, they support his policies. He has a palace built for him. The ark of the Lord is there. God's presence and God's blessings are there. Everyone's happy with it. He's happy. Things could not be better. And they return home. And then David decides it's time to go home as well. So we pick up the story in verse 20. When David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. Now this is, this is big. Because Michael, again, she, we just talked about her for a while. She's, she's aggrieved. She's got legitimate frustrations, right? I mean, if anyone doesn't sympathize with Michael, I don't know how you don't. She, she's frustrated for all the things we talked about. And she's not going to wait in the house for David to arrive home to all of his wives and concubines and children and have a feast there, just like he had a celebration with the other rest of Israel. She's not waiting for him to come home and bless them all and sit around and, and cheer and celebrate as a group. She wants to talk to him directly. So she goes out to meet him. And he's walking up on top of the world. People are probably with him as he comes. People are probably out there as she heads out. As a, it's public confrontation. And in this moment, here's what she says to him. She said in disgust, 
How distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls, like any vulgar person might do. Wow, sharp words. Harsh, sharp words to the king publicly by his wife. Ouch. And and again, Hebrew is so tricky and, and trying to understand what's going on. Let me just give you some context or some possibilities here. First of all, as we read this story, we keep seeing Michael as being referred to as Michael, the daughter of Saul, not Michael, the wife of of David, which means that either Michael is so unhappy with how this has gone and where she was that she was identifying more with her father's household than she was David's anymore, or it means that David, when he writes the story later, angry at what happens here, he, uh, he just associates her with his own family and puts her in the hostile territory of her father's house who used to hunt him, and calls her that. Either way, there's a bad divide going on here. And what she could be saying, if you try to understand the Hebrew, she could be saying, my family would never act that way in public. We had, we had decorum. We would never go through the lack of the undignified method of stripping down and prancing around as the king. What were you doing out there? That could be what she was saying. I can't, I can't, I can't argue that that was a possible interpretation here. The other thing that she seems to be saying, too, is to say, oh, look at you out there watching you from my room in the palace out there, dancing around. All the girls, like, like when we were kids, when we were first married, all the women always sing, writing songs to you. They're all cheering for you. You gonna marry them too? I mean, you know, everyone out there, just here you are. Everyone loves you. You're shamelessly exposing. It. It's great. Are they coming home too next? I mean, she's not happy for good reason, but she's letting David have it at a very bad time in a public way because she's reacting out of pain. And that's usually what gets us in trouble when we react to the pain. Well, David is offended by her words. And David's going to react out of being offended too, which again, we get in trouble when we act out of being. David's not going to handle this well, though he should. Verse 21, David retorted to Michael. He said, I was dancing before the Lord, who chose me above your father and all his family. Ouch. Like, in other words, your family, the house of Saul, that great place, it gone. They all got after me, and God, God, what did the prophet Samuel say? God chose someone better than them? Yeah, they're out of here. I'm in, they're out. So, so what do you know, house, daughter of Saul, about, about me? Because God's chosen me over everybody else. I'm the man. I'm the guy. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So yes, I will celebrate before the Lord. You know, they'll like it, but I'm right, you're wrong. And then he goes on a step further. That was fine. He was defending his actions there. But then he says... Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will be indeed think I am distinguished. Now again, translations, hard stuff. Basically what he's saying, and we're gonna, the next verse is going to show us this in a moment here. What he says to her basically is this. You think, you think I'm disgusting to you now? You ain't seen nothing yet. You and I as a couple, we're done. I'm not divorcing you. I'm not throwing you out in the street because that's too heartless. Or, nor am I setting you free to go back to your husband for most of your adult life because I'm not letting, you're mine. We're, we're, you're going to my wife. You're staying here. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take, you're going to live a good life here, but we're not intimate anymore. But, but not only are we not a couple, a couple that way anymore, but no one else is going to be with you either. You're done. Because there will be no more children born into the house of Saul on my watch, and we're done. And so it says in the next verse, 
So Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. Terrible. She's just isolated. She doesn't live a, 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 a life on a street or something like that, but she's isolated because she was rightfully upset. And, and in her anger, she confronted David in an improper way. And David was offended and responded to her in an improper and wrong way. It's like a crazy cycle going on here, right? That's how things, how things escalate, right? Right here. This is how things go. It's like, oh yeah, wham, wham! But David had the final say because he's the king. What's she going to do? She's going to go take her medicine. And she's isolated. And it's sad. It's sad to see a couple that once were young and in love and had a bright future and dreams, and now they're strangers in the same palace and at odds. And Michael is the loser in this arrangement because of David's position. And when you read the story, you're like, David? He's been so good. What, what's he thinking here? Like, couldn't he have approached this differently? Like, why couldn't David have said to Michael, hey, does she have a point in her criticism? Well, she didn't have a point. He was worshiping, celebrating before the Lord. She was wrong. Okay. But could he have done, could he have done this? Could he have said, hey, I think you're, what you're saying is wrong, but where's this coming from? Where's this coming from? Something's under the surface. Can we sit down and have coffee and talk this out? Maybe we should wait a few days and calm down. Let's get, let's get a bite together. Let's figure out what's happening here. Maybe if he had done that, he could have figured out that she was upset because of what they used to be and what they had got separated and what the life she came to know that she, he ripped her from to be something that they're not anymore and she's part of this whole thing. Maybe he would have heard her grievance and realized why she's upset and said, oh, she's got a point. Maybe he would have remembered the law of God that he talked about how much he loved, that said he was at to multiply wives to himself. And maybe he would have thought, ah, this is the kind of pitfall God was warning me about. But he didn't even get there because he didn't even listen to her. He just said, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm honoring God, look at all I'm doing, be gone. And it's sad because, because here's the thing, David, David was so convinced of his greatness that he ignored his weakness. I'm better than your father's house. God put me here. I brought the ark here. Everyone loves me. What's your problem? And I can't lean in to consider there might be some merit to what's being said. He was so convinced of his greatness. We do that sometimes. We can ignore our weaknesses. Well, I got to come back. We moving on. We got to move on along here. There's a lot to cover. We have a baptism, and so let's, let's get in. Second Samuel seven. A lot happens in this passage. I'm just going to run through it briefly. Um, David. He's, he's sleeping in bed at night and he's thinking about his new capital city. He's thinking about his new palace that was built for him, his whole huge growing family, putting the unpleasantness aside just now. And he's thinking about the ark of the Lord. He loved the Lord. He brought the ark into his city because he wanted to honor God. But he's thinking about how it's sitting out there in a tent while he's in a nice house built from cedar. And he says, I shouldn't let God's house, God should be in a fancy house like me. We should build a, a fancy house for the worship of God, a temple. So he tells the next day, he tells the prophet Nathan his intentions. And Nathan, the prophet's like, dude, you're a great king. I say, go for it. But then that night, Nathan's asleep and Nathan, Nathan, God tells Nathan, you spoke out of pocket. Go back to David and tell him the right message this time. So Nathan comes back to David and says, um, yeah, here's God's actual word. Thanks, but no thanks. Like, first of all, I don't need my creation to make 
a house for me out of things I created. You know, like um, I'm not in a box. I don't live in a box. That box is just a, a symbol of my presence, but I'm bigger than I brought you out of slavery. I've given you this nation. And yes, those are symbols and touch points for you to worship me. But I've never complained along the journey that I needed my own, my own house, okay? I'm, I'm doing okay running the whole universe. So, but thank you. But here's what God said to David through Nathan. God said, David, I'm gonna let your son be the future king someday. And the son will be allowed to build a, a, a temple. The reason you can't is because you're a new king in a nation that has been struggling to get its foothold in this land. And so you're gonna be a man of war still. But after you will come a son who will live in peace and he can build a temple. And by the way, I'm gonna give you a perpetual throne generations upon generations of your lineage. And I'm gonna make your name famous. And he has. He has made David's name famous. Because we're talking about him 3,000 years later today across the world. And because his throne did continue. And even when Israel stopped existing geopolitically for a while, thousand years after David, from his lineage, was born the king of kings, Jesus Christ. So as we look at this story, you know, God said, I'm going to bless you. And it's interesting because some of us, it's, it's the dichotomy of how do we view David. Because he's been so good, but then he was so bad a minute ago. And wait till we get to what happens later for David. It's, it's not always pretty. And, and we struggle in culture with this because some people through history have written history books to whitewash the past and just make he, uh, past people into awesome, never-do-wrong heroes. And other people, and in our, in our shows, you know, the heroes are always good. And then, of course, the, the, the boomerang effect has been that people start to write about people as the, all their flaws. And almost like we should cancel them because of their mistakes in the past. And there's no good because they were bad here, so all their accomplishments are nothing. And there's that tension of they're all great, they're, they're all terrible, and nothing should be celebrated. And, and it's, so more, it's more, more sticky than that. And the scripture stories help us understand the difficulty of navigating that. Because when you read the stories of the scriptures, these are people who were sometimes amazing people who did great things, but were also quite flawed and wrong at times. And, and both things existed. Yes, that was, this was inexcusable, and this, this had consequences. But yes, this was a remarkable, and it doesn't, it doesn't change that legacy. And David's one of those characters that is, is messy, but, but he's known as a man after God's own heart. And so far, he's been pretty remarkable. I'm just setting you up because a pretty crazy thing is going to happen later, not today. But God blesses him, and David's so honored by God's promised blessing that he thanks and praises God for his past provision and his promises for the future, and he begins to prepare for his son to someday build the temple. Things are wonderful. One last quick story, then we've got to wrap this up with a couple applications and go home, or move on. 2 Samuel 9, I don't want to miss this because it's important. One day, David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So David's established. He's been putting God first for the most part. He's um, been like, I want to be good to other people. And I love my old buddy Jonathan, Saul's son. Is there anyone left in Saul's family that's still alive that I can be good to them? And I can picture his wife, Michael's over there somewhere saying, um, yes. Pick me, pick me, you know. And, and David's like, no, no, not you. Anybody else in Saul's family still alive that I can be kind to, you know, I can be good to. And so he's looking around and he finds a man whose name is Ziba. Ziba 
was the property manager of Saul's land. So when King Saul was the king, he had lots of servants. One was a man named Ziba. Ziba's job was to take his family, his servants, and they were to operate, they were to operate the land of, um, that Saul owned. Saul owned private land in the tribe of Benjamin. Ziba and his, his uh, family and his servants operated that for King Saul while King Saul ran the kingdom. Well, then Saul dies in battle. Saul's sons die in battle. They're all gone. So Ziba's like, well, I guess we keep operating the land, keep managing the property, and it's kind of ours now because everyone else is gone. So they're going to manage the property. And it's just kind of not theirs but theirs, you know. Well, David brings Ziba in and says, is there anyone left in Saul's family that I can be kind to? And Ziba's like, well, you mean other than your wife? I mean, uh, yeah, there's um, actually Jonathan, your old buddy Jonathan had a son whose name was Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan that we've not met yet, though he was mentioned before. He was the disabled son of Jonathan. What had happened was when King Saul and Jonathan and others died in the battle, that the nurse who was taking care of little Mephibosheth heard that they had died, and she was afraid for his life because in, in the world back then when kings fell, people would come into reign and would kill off the previous royal family. So out of fear for his life, she picked him up to run, and when she did, she, she dropped him and, and, and maimed him in his, in his feet and his, 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 his legs. Or he just, somehow he was, it, it just messed him up. And they didn't have the kind of technology and the medical procedures that we have today where, where they could do constructive uh, uh, surgery, to, to corrective surgery to get him on his feet. He was just disabled for life. And so he lived, not, he lived in someone else's house in Lodabar. And David finds out through Ziba that this Mephibosheth lives somewhere else as Jonathan's son, while Ziba lives on Saul's property and takes care of it all for himself and his servants. And so David says, bring Mephibosheth here. They do. Mephibosheth is scared to death, like I've been trying to hide out. Now the new king's gonna probably kill me. He's scared. He bows before David, and David's like, no, 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 no. Don't be afraid. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna give you back all of your grandpa's property and your dad's property. I'm going to let that, the other people take care of it for you, and then you're going to, but you're going to live here at the palace. You need at my table. And so it says in verse number nine that the king, the King David, summoned Saul's servant Ziba, and he said, Hey, I've given your master's grandson, Mephibosheth, everything that belonged to Saul and to his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him, to produce food for your master's household. You take care of the property, make it profitable for him. But he, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is going to eat here at my table. So Ziba and all his children and servants went back to the property to take care of it again, but not for themselves, but for Mephibosheth, because that's what the king wanted. And David was just being good to others. We're going to stop the stories here today, because that brings us to the edge of, of what I consider to be season three of David's life. And as boy, is that a wild ride. But before we get into all of that, we leave off today. I want to leave you with a couple of key takeaways. Because it's interesting reading the stories. And again, David's been our protagonist all along. He's been remarkable. But we saw something today that probably doesn't leave a great taste in our mouth about how he handled this law of God for kings and marriage and then how he treated Michael. But he was serving God so well. But here's the, I've been around a while, and so have you, some of you, so you can join me in, in this acknowledgement. Something that's true is that it's possible to disobey God while serving him. David's serving the Lord, but at the same time, he's got this area of glaring disobedience. 
I mean, I've seen it my whole life. It's possible to say, oh, yeah, I'm serving the Lord. I'm, I'm doing good things. I mean, I'm a pastor. I can, I can think of pastors through the years who were doing unhealthy things, and if confronted, they would say, look how many I have in church. How many of, I led this many to Christ. Brother, how have you been doing, you know? And as if that somehow that excuses the, prop, the, the, the disobedience. And for all of us, it's easy to walk around and say, look at all the good I do. I work hard. I provide. I, 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 I'm, I'm a, a good person, a good hardworking person. I'm a good mom, a good wife, a good dad, a good husband, a good citizen. A good, I'm involved in my local church. I'm a generous. I, I do things for others. Look at all these things. I contribute. So, hey, so I have a thing. Who cares? Everyone's got a thing, right? It's my thing. I mean, nobody's perfect. Or as we used to say, nobody's perfect. Just leave me alone, man. It's possible to disobey God while serving. And that's what David's doing in today's story. But here's the thing I want us to, to, to think about. Our good works can blind us to what needs work if we're not careful. Because we're like, yeah, but look at all this good stuff. And it can just blind us to the thing that needs work. Because after all, how bad can it be? Look how good I'm doing. Look how much God's blessing. Look, look at all that I'm accomplishing. So Whatever. I think that's what happened to David here. He comes home and he had a chance. He had a chance to see something that he was not looking at. When Michael confronted him, if he had had the humility to say, yeah, what about that girl? Does she have a point? Or she doesn't have a point about this, but something's wrong. <laughs> Let's figure out what's wrong. Where's this coming from? He may have saw the root cause of it all and thought about the, the, the law of Moses that he was not obeying. And maybe he would have said, yeah, I, I see it now. Maybe he could have done something about it. Maybe it would have changed what happens next in his story that we'll get to another week. But he didn't. He just said, no, I'm serving the Lord. God's blessed me. He's good. Look at the kingdom with the ark here. Just, you get out of here, woman. Because I'm doing great. Be careful that our good works don't blind us to what needs work. That our, we don't use our good deeds to make excuses for our bad ones. So I say, okay, fine, Arlen. I, you probably should, and I think you're you know, God's putting something in my heart that I don't want to dance around right here, but what do you do? Because sometimes you're blind to it anyhow. How do you, how do you address things if you're kind of blind to what needs work anyhow? And I'm going to give you uh, one statement that's three things real fast, and we'll wrap it up here. Here's what you do. You find it, you face it, and you fix it. That's what you do. You find it, face it, and fix it. What it find it means when a red flag pops up in your life, you don't just sit there and say, ah, that's probably nothing. It'll go away. It'll just work itself out, I'm sure. It's always dangerous when we ignore the red flags thinking, it'll be okay, I'm sure. I just ignore that. Instead of saying, where's this coming from? Is this a problem? Is this a symptom with a root cause? What's going on here? I need to find out what it is. Because if there's a hole in the bottom of your ship, it doesn't matter how much the rest of the ship's doing great, floating around, how great it looks, it's going to eventually sink you. And so when something's a red flag, find it. Flush that thing out. And then face it. Face it means with humility. It's being willing to say, I'm not perfect. I'm not going to even pretend to you that I am. I'm humble enough to say, yes, let me be transparent. That isn't right. That isn't good. Thank you. Or I'm sorry. Or let me work on that. Or I need some accountability. Or whatever it may be. Just face it with honesty. And then fix it. Don't look in the mirror, see the problem, and walk away without changing it. Say, I need to fix that. Because if I don't, it may linger around, and one day it might just bite me, as David's going to find out. But the danger for all of us is this. 
We're doing a good job. I'm looking at a room full of people. You're here on Sunday morning on a, on a, on a busy, you're busy. People all over the world don't care about God enough to show up on a Sunday, and you are saying, he gets the first part of my week. There's so much about all of you that if we told your story, you're remarkable people. I'm, I'm hopefully we're all doing good things. But we shouldn't let our good works blind us to what needs work. Is there something that we need to flesh out, to find it, to face it, to fix it? My question today is this. I'm proud of all of us. I love you all so much, and I know you love me, but, but I need to ask myself this, and maybe you can join me. What needs work? What needs work? What's that red flag? What's that thing? I need to find it, face it, fix it. Before it becomes a monster, I never intended it to be. What's the thing that needs work? That's a good thing to wrestle down today. And here's what I know about God. As we, as we say those words or as we pray in a moment here, you probably don't have to search very hard. He's really good at knocking at our heart's door with his Holy Spirit. And if he's seeping into your heart, just say, God, thank you for all. This is positive. This is, what, this is the goodness of God. What I'm saying today is the goodness of God. I think of Phil Needler right here, my you know, health coach in the area. Phil, you know what it's like for people to say they're doing all these awesome things, but you're like, you're not taking care of your health. That can undermine all the good things you're doing and, and, and be a problem later. So don't ignore what needs work because of all these other things. That's, that's whether it's physical or whether it's spiritual, financial, anything that's part of our life, if we ignore things that need work, it, it, can, it, can, it, can, it can come around later, right? So what we have to learn to do is to say, I'm glad for the good that's being done, but I'm thankful when I'm made aware of something that needs to be addressed. So what needs work today? Whatever that is. That's God's grace. So let's pray.